0: Welcome to the show. I am your host, Todd Dallas Lamb, and you're listening to On the Clock. On the Clock is a venture with the Strategos Podcast Network, where we feature an array of guests to dive into all things education. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the show. My name is Todd Dallas Lamb. I am your host, and with me today is Sean Precious, Executive Director of the Chicago Public Schools charter schools sean thank you for being on the show i really appreciate it how are you doing today i'm doing well uh thanks so much for having me todd as we tape this it is early march and you're in chicago uh, is it freezing still or are you getting some better weather
1: it it feels more like a day from my uh, my former uh, stomping grounds, Denver. It started out snowing this morning, but now it's uh, like high uh, high forties, and the sun isn't really shining. So that's more Chicago, but uh, it's a mix of wintry weather this morning.
0: One of my favorite cities, a great food city, a great architectural city. The uh, the little river tour, architectural tour that you can take on the boats is one of my favorite tourist attractions of, uh, of the country. So one of my favorite places that you live in now.
1: Yeah, one of the first things I did when I uh, moved back here.
0: That's great. So how many charter schools are there in Chicago? One, one of our biggest districts in America. What, Where is Chicago? First of all, on the pantheon of the largest districts in America, where what's its ranking and how many charter schools do you have?
1: Yeah, so it's the third largest district in the country currently, although Miami is uh, hot on our heels um, as the number four largest. Um, and then we'll get into this a little bit as we talk about some of the misperceptions about charter schools, but uh, it depends on how you define and, and what you think of as a charter school. Um, but we currently have 133 charter contract or option schools. Charter schools um, are sort of a blend of, I'm sorry, contract schools are a blend of uh, charter schools that have some autonomy but have to abide by more district policy and regulation. Um, And then our option schools are what we call um, our alternative high schools in Chicago. We have about 40 of those. Um, And our team supports a portfolio of 133 schools total.
0: What kind of option schools are there? I, I know a good bit about the contract school. I have uh, I, some experience with those. And, and typically those are where a, a district has a shortcoming, say a special education shortcoming, and they'll contract with a for-profit uh, company, maybe might even be a non-profit company that can run a school for them. That's the contract, which is a little different than a charter, which has to be applied for typically. What, 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 how do the options work?
1: That's the distinction. And then the options are really a blend of charter and contracts. So we have some external vendors that uh, push out programming and support with programming for students. And then we have some charter networks that are part of the Alternative Schools Network, um, which is a, a national consortium. Um, and so that's part of the complexity is you've got a variety of different school types. Um, all trying to serve um, some of our most vulnerable student populations.
0: What's your background real quick? How did, you, uh, how did you land this job? What were you doing before and before that?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and one that I ask myself every day, how did <laughs> I, uh, I get here? Um, so I have, you know, that for- sort of traditional linear path. Um, I started out as a classroom teacher, uh, taught middle school math and science, Um, Spent some time doing some uh, coaching and supporting of new teachers, as well as contributing to the recruitment. Uh, I actually worked on the national staff for Teach for America for four years. Um, After that, I became a principal. Uh, in Washington, D.C., and most recently before becoming to Chicago, uh, I was a regional superintendent. So the titles are always a little bit different uh, in every district, but this is that principal manager role, um, and I supported a subset of schools in Denver. Um, All of that uh, led me to different types of professional development opportunities uh, behind the scenes. Connected me to a lot of different networks uh, and organizations that support district and charter schools. And I've always been somebody that's really governance agnostic. Um, We'll we'll get into this right as we talk about different types of programming uh, that schools that I've worked with are currently providing. But I'm really just about uh, great schools for all kids. Um, charter district, it does not matter. Uh, But I did get a call about a year ago from a recruiter, uh, someone that I used to work with in Denver that uh, talked to me a little bit about this opportunity. And I was really inspired uh, by the work that the Chicago Public Schools has been doing. Um, Nationally, they've got one of the highest graduation rates um, for urban city centers, and uh, really wanted to magnify the impact that I was having in my current role and work with more kids, more schools, um, and create more opportunity.
0: You mentioned your role with Teach for America. I've worked with so many companies that are founded by Teach for America teachers who were so inspired by what they were able to do in that effort. Our our state senator, uh, our state senate president in Maryland is a Teach for America alumnus, worked in Baltimore City schools. and and sort of weaved that into a greater leadership role. He looks like he's 22, but um, he's like 37. He's one of the most powerful people in the state. Tell our listeners a little bit about Teach for America and what what, what makes it kind of a special uh, enterprise.
1: Yeah, I and I think I definitely recognize that um, Teach for America is, uh, you know, it means different things in different contexts, right? Um, for me, I, I first learned about this organization when I was an undergraduate student at University of Illinois. And uh, I was so excited about the possibility of um, working and impacting in an area that looked very different from one that I came from. Um, an opportunity to make a real difference and to have an impact on kids that didn't have the kinds of opportunities that, that I had and, and currently have today. Um, and so I threw my hat in the ring, I applied uh, and went through their process, um, spent some time in California as a classroom teacher. And I think, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about Teach for America and then we're gonna sort of later in the conversation talk a little bit about charter schools. I think because I think the two things are related in that I think lots of folks, you hear Teach for America and you think a certain thing um, or you think a certain sort of archetype. And I I think you think the same thing about charter schools and there's just some misconceptions that I've seen. Um, So a couple of things, I think some people think O teach for America is um, still today an organization that is sort of taking jobs away from other teachers. I haven't found that to be the case in my experiences. Um, When I was a principal, I was sort of desperate. Uh, There weren't a lot of people that were applying to work in my school. Um, I know in both Denver and Chicago districts that I've worked in, they're supplying a necessary pipeline of talent that we actually are reliant on. Um, so I, I never sort of experienced the sort of 22 year old, you know, white Male outsider, which which I was when I went to L.A., sort of taking a job away from somebody else who might be a part of the community, um, and then I also think you know I, I think there's lots of folks that you know confuse Teach for America with other sort of teacher pipeline programs that are asking folks to spend more time in the classroom than the two-year Teach for America commitment. And so oftentimes people will say, oh, TFA folks don't stay. They don't stay in their school. They just are using it as a way to go on to law school um, or or something to make their med school applications look good. And again, like that just hasn't been my experience. Um, I, I work with a lot of folks here in Chicago um in Denver and DC, there were lots of folks at all levels that had been affiliated with Teach for America and that were still connected to education. I think the statistic that uh, TFA uses is, you know, somewhere in the you know 80s, right? Like you've got about 80% of alumni that are still active in education today. Um, and that feels true to me when I think about my own experience. I'm not still classroom teaching. Um, but still very much connected to education.
0: Let's circle back to charter schools then, Uh, your focus today in Chicago. I've had 20 plus years of of thinking about and observing the charter school movement. And it really is, I think still, uh, more or less a movement in education, Uh, a movement that has its fans in the Democratic Party, but not all of the Democratic Party. And it has its fans in the Republican Party, but not all in the Republican Party either, Uh, detractors in both parties. In my own state of Maryland, we have uh, a charter school law that's been around 20 years, and it has produced a grand total of about 30 charter schools, Uh, quite a a shorter number than what you deal with on a daily basis. Uh, And that's because there's a purpose behind that. The, 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 The teachers union in my state of Maryland is not into creating a lot of charter schools they produce a lot of support from legislators around our state and therefore you you know you get what you pay for in that sense on the other side Republicans have been famously not so supportive of charter schools in their suburban neighborhoods uh, but they many of them also some of the same ones will tell you that it's a it's a panacea for all the ills of urban education what is it about the riddle of charter schools that seems to continue to face some of the same challenges. And I'll give you just one. You and I talked about it before. A lot of people think charter schools are private schools. Uh, they think that they are uh, a private school uh, resource and they're simply not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, and it's funny, your question like belies a lot of sort of political connections that like, I don't really think a lot about, right? Like I don't have any sort of experience in, in local or state politics. Um, like I said, I was, you know, I was a teacher and a principal and I think a lot about, um, how can we better support the people that are inside a schoolhouse, um, to produce better outcomes for kids? Like that's sort of my lens on all of this. Um, I do think there's a lot of misconceptions about charter schools. And I think this sort of gets misconstrued on both sides of the sort of political aisle, but just in in everyday conversations. Um, And so what I've seen that I think is sometimes helpful for people to understand are some of the following things. Um, All of the charters that I've been affiliated with in all of the districts that I've worked in. So you think about Washington, D.C., you think about Denver, you think about here in Chicago. These are all public entities um, that are receiving the same sorts of funding from the state um and the same sorts of local property tax revenue um, that neighborhood schools are receiving um there's some complexity with some of that funding that i won't go into unless any of your listeners are having trouble sleeping uh in which case we can stick around after the fact but by and large the funding is relatively similar um they're also public entities meaning that um, if you're living on the, let's say, the west side of, of Chicago, and you're really interested in a school on the north side, you have the ability to go to and attend that school and work through our enrollment processes. Um, all of our charter schools, like our neighborhood district schools, are open enrollment. Um, and you can apply, and provided there's not a waiting list, um, you're able to attend those schools. And so, again, I think sometimes... The way charters are are marketed or the way, uh, to your point, certain politicians may frame things in sort of a broader rhetoric, it just creates a lot of confusion for families that are trying to navigate already complex enrollment processes. Um, but one of the things that I'm proud of is that our schools are open for all.
0: What is the... Give me a, some sense of the spread of options that you have within Chicago. Uh, as we mentioned, it is a, one of the great restaurant towns in America. Uh, you were telling me before we, we taped the show, you have culinary programs within your charter schools. How cool is that?
1: Yeah, so these are offerings we have in our charter schools. I I also am really proud of the fact that we offer these things on the district side as well. Um, Again, I've seen this similar in other districts that I've worked like Denver and DC, Um, but there's currently 13 schools across the city that have what we call an academic program um, sort of distinction or designation. Um, and there's 13 schools that have culinary or hospitality as their program distinction. And what that really means is it's, it's what you would think, right? If you're interested in that type of a career pathway Or interested in that type of a career track, um, you can enroll in that school. And there's gonna be coursework and opportunities that are aligned to that. So in these uh, some of these culinary programs, you have the opportunity to take your sort of regular core academic classes in the morning. um, And that experience is gonna look and feel similar to any high school. You know, you're gonna have your math, you're gonna have your English courses. Um, those are all of your sort of graduation, uh, requisites for, um, for, for graduating. Um, and then in the afternoon, you're going to have an opportunity to study and train and apprentice, um, with, with chefs, uh, in different, in some cases, you may apprentice in actual hospitality or culinary organizations. Um, you may go and work in a kitchen, uh, in, in an afternoon, um, and I know on the hospitality side, we do have uh, internships and apprenticeships with uh, some of our hotel chains as well. So um, great opportunities. And again, uh, similar to opportunities that I've seen in other places. So it's not just Chicago, but I do think that this there is a tremendous amount of potential and opportunity to do so much more with these types of programs.
0: I always have thought that, that the culinary arts is one of the greatest ways to teach the history of the world through food. Uh, you want to learn mathematics? Uh, try baking something. It's all mathematics. Sure. Uh, it's it's chemistry. Uh, it's 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 the history of the world. I I'm I'm now listening to a podcast where I'm learning about the South American sugar trade and how that led to the Atlantic slave trade. And and if you don't understand where sugar came from in the beginning uh, of the of the world, how we spread it to Europe, um, you don't really understand South America and you don't understand uh, how that, that trade took place because of the, uh, previously sugar was a very expensive thing. We now look at it as a very simple uh, commodity that that's everywhere and it is everywhere, but it, there's a history to it that's amazing. And that's all through, uh, possibly if you want to go to one of your schools, learning the history of the world through cooking. It, it seems to me an, an amazing way to look at it and for students to become more engaged. And I think, you know,
1: I think I appreciate all that. I'm also thinking, I'm thinking about all my middle school social studies lessons about like Marco Polo and salt and the sort of spice trades. And like, it's such a great point. I think I'm coming at this much more pragmatically um, as an educator in 2022 today, that, you know, a lot of like, we have got to do so much more to strengthen the relevance for kids today. Um, And what I always say is if, if, there are whatever students are passionate about doing. It is the sort of role of a district or a charter organization or what have you um, to create as as much access to as many of those opportunities as possible. Um, and culinary is just one of those fields right like i've worked with schools that are offering programs in coding or video gaming um all sorts of arts and fusion models that allow students to express themselves creatively creatively um i, I think core academic instruction is is so essential um I, I could do a whole separate podcast with you about the importance of early literacy and making sure that all kids are reading on grade level by third grade but i think as we get into middle and high school, um, and we see this so much in our charter sector here in Chicago. Um, it's really important to have a variety of programs that are really relevant to what kids need to know um, in 2022. Uh, and and I think our industry is a little bit behind um, the sort of job market and and what we're hearing and seeing from employers and what they really need today.
0: Sean, you mentioned. Uh previously the declining uh, student population in Chicago. Walk me through a couple of factors behind that.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, 10 years ago uh, we had, I'm I'm trying to look at my notes here. We had about 30,000 kindergarten students enrolled in CPS. That was in 2009. This past year in 2021, um, that number fell to about 22,000. And so as we know, right, there's gonna be that ripple effect each year with less students enrolling in kindergarten. Um, it's gonna ripple all the way through for for many, many, many years to come. Um, and so the first thing that we're seeing and hearing is just declining birth rate, um, which, I think there's a lot actually to celebrate within that as we think about um, increased opportunities economically, economic mobility, um, particularly for women, you know, more opportunities in the workforce. Like there's actually a, a positive spin on that. I think much more pragmatically, um, you just have less kids than our school why age. Why is
0: that? Why, are we, why do we have a declining birth rate? Why, is that national? Is that a national figure as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly in the places that I've worked, um, there is a declining birth rate. I I think nationally, there is uh, lots of data out there right now that there's, again, what I was just alluding to as sort of a celebration. um, People are having less children. Um, People are waiting longer to have children. Um, And again, as we see increased opportunities for women, um, and more economic mobility, particularly uh, black and brown women, um, we're seeing a declining birth rate nationally. Um, and that's definitely playing out in cities like Denver and Chicago.
0: What else, what are what the factors?
1: I would say um, here in Chicago, one of the other factors that we've seen um, is we just have more students and more families that are moving outside of urban centers. Um, and they're finding opportunities in the suburbs. They're finding opportunities in more rural communities. Um, So Gary, Indiana is where we've had a lot of families um, post COVID, certainly now that many employers have relaxed uh, working conditions and they don't have to be working on site and can work remotely we're seeing that actually have a ripple effect on the types of choices that families are making as they choose where they wanna live um, and where they wanna send their children to school um so that's also a trend as well i saw some of that in denver uh too lots of families starting to migrate to the sort of metropolitan communities that were within 30 to 45 minutes of uh of denver it's a similar trend here in chicago Um, although it's a much larger district just geographically speaking but certainly we're seeing a lot of families migrate uh further south some of the south suburbs and some of the more rural districts Uh, you know, sort of on that I-57 corridor. Um, And then a good number of families that are actually migrating to Indiana. Uh, Taxes are a little bit lower. And again, with COVID and sort of all that's come of the great resignation, um, lots of people are finding opportunities to work remotely and don't need to be as close to a city center anymore.
0: I wager you can sell your place in Chicago, and move 45 minutes away and find a much bigger place for a lot less money, uh, that's probably pretty attractive to people if you can work from home.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I also think you know uh, affordable housing is certainly a factor. It's just not one that's rising. Like we're not, when we talk to families or when we hear from why people are leaving, the sort of cost of living from a housing perspective, is not sort of at the top of the list, but we, we imagine that's a factor as well. Certainly, that played out much more in Colorado, um, where 10 years ago, the cost to own a home and live close to the city center in Denver, I mean, I, I think it's quadrupled in the last 10 years. I mean, you've seen an absolute explosion with housing and the cost of living Um, in a city like denver you haven't seen that as much in a city like chicago Like housing prices are relatively stable um but of course affordable housing and just cost of living are always a factor
0: i go to a lot of conferences education conferences i hear a lot of folks like you talk uh in the last few years the the word equity has become really synonymous with any talking points that an education leader uh, wants to get out there into the public square. I always feel like with a lot of buzzwords in American education, people pay homage to those words. Sometimes I feel a little, uh, shall we say, wanting with regards to putting details on those words what, what does equity mean to you
1: yeah I, I really appreciate this question you know i think there, there has been a lot of conversation about equity um for folks like myself it's been a part of our journey the whole time that we've been in you know in education and it's certainly been much more prevalent uh over the last few years We're obviously seeing how COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted black and brown communities across the country. Um, I would say for me, just to boil it down, um, I, I think most folks will see people like you and me, they will assume that we identify as white men. And I think it's about acknowledging that we have a tremendous amount of privilege and too much is given, much is expected. And so what I would expect with the work that we are trying to do with equity and justice and liberation, it's about two things for me, just to boil it down, to be as succinct as possible. It's about making sure that every kid uh, has a place to belong when they are in school. What I mean by that is that they have a relationship with an adult that cares for them, values them, sees them, um, and that we've got to build the systems and structures to support that type of mentoring model. And then the second piece would be, if, if we have truly done what we say we want to do as a country, it would be the ability to walk into any school in this country and not be able to predict outcomes based on who's in the building. Um, And I've had the fortune in Chicago, in Denver, in DC, of, of working in and working with buildings that are actually eradicating the predictability that currently comes with education outcomes. So what I mean by that is, you could walk into any high school in this country and you would not be able to predict graduation grade graduation rates along racial lines. Um, you you actually can do that now. We know there are gaps um, among key metrics. I've already alluded to third grade reading, obviously graduation rates. Um, I'm interested in what equity means to me is eliminating that disproportionality and eliminating the predictability
0: of outcomes. So what an incredible goal, but man, doesn't that just blow you away with regards to the challenge. And I'll give you one example. I have a very good friend who was a superintendent at a district in uh, in New Jersey, predominantly Asian. You know what his biggest problem was? His parents wanted the books like a year in advance so they could make their kids read them well before they were being told to read them by the school. Now, you compare that with the lower middle-class white uh, community that I grew up in, and that's inequity right there. Uh, we didn't have any parents begging for books early where I grew up. How does a school district make up for that? I mean, isn't that the great challenge? I mean, I once heard a superintendent say, second to having two loving, thoughtful parents into the in, in, in every kid's home, Uh, This whatever he what the hell he said after that, I don't remember. But he said, you know, this would be like the most important thing after that. Like, how does a school district how does and frankly, how does government overcome the lack of two caring parents in a home?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, again, it's just it's a great question. Um, we'll have to do a follow up uh, on some of this. I, I could talk for, I could talk for hours about this. You're seeing I'm uh, I'm a little wordy anyway as I respond to some of these questions. I would say part of the answer is that we've got to stop looking to the school district to solve all of these problems. That this has to be a collaboration um you know from from birth in terms of how we partner with prenatal care we've already talked about some of the other issues that are leading families and students away from city centers um and so there's a variety like we've just got to partner more with more folks and the way that we oftentimes and we're seeing this with national labor disputes um and we're seeing with like just how low satisfaction rates are amongst teachers right now. Because I think during the pandemic, it it shined a spotlight on just how much a classroom teacher is expected to do in in any given day. Um, And they're playing so many roles beyond just, you know, helping kids read grade level appropriate textbooks or grade level appropriate books. And so I do think part of the answer, although incredibly complex, is shifting the perception um, that we all have around education. You alluded to politicians in one of your earlier questions. Um, you know, we continue to give education and education reform and the resources that school leaders and principals and teachers need. Um, and we, we give that a lot of lip service, especially during you know, election years. I haven't always experienced the impact of that. And it's what I said at the very beginning of this conversation, given my background, um, of course I am a supporter of charters. I'm also equally supportive of district schools. And we've gotta do so much more to make sure we're supporting people inside the schoolhouse. And that's gonna be a partnership and a collaboration with a lot of different local, state, and national organizations. And we can't keep putting the sort of challenge of educating children and all of the issues that stem from that from, you know, ages five to 18 entirely on a schoolhouse or entirely on a school district.
0: Without a doubt. And uh, the the next politician of either party that challenges parents to do a better job of getting their kids ready to learn will get my vote. Um, Sean. Precious, thank you so much for being on the show. My final question for you, what's your favorite education movie of all time?
1: Uh, I, I love this question. I was saying, uh, I know we talked about this earlier, but uh, there's a lot of movies out there that I think are just rife with cliche sure. and perpetuate you know, all the sort of wrong things about <laughs> like what it is to be a teacher or what it is to work in a school. Um, but I actually think Remembering the Titans is always a reminder to me of the impact that adults can have on young people and the importance of making sure we're doing everything we can to support them.
0: Yep, Uh, what a great movie. Um, It combines you know, multiple things that I love. Football being one of them. Uh, overcoming racial barriers, and they and he even takes a moment to teach him about Gettysburg. He runs them out to the to the Gettysburg, Get, circling back to our conversation about how you can teach history through almost anything in this country. Absolutely, uh, Sean Precious. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. We really appreciate you being on the show.